Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banter Podcast, where birders talk birding. My guest this episode is Eric Heisey. Eric is a young Washington State birder, and I've kind of followed his eBird lists and seen his post to tweeters and know that he's well-respected and a very good young birder in the state, but I don't know a lot about him, or I didn't until I got a chance to talk to him today. Peter Wimberger, who's a friend and a professor at UPS and a previous guest on the show, reached out to me and said, have you had Eric Heisey on the on the podcast yet? He's really good. You'd love talking to him. And so I reached out to Eric after Peter gave me an introduction, and here we go with an episode with Eric Heisey. Eric is spending the winter in the Metau Valley area. Metau Valley is this beautiful area in central, north central Washington, Okanagan County, near Winthrop, and he's staying near there in his parents' cabin as a part of his uh, COVID isolation process. He's recent college graduate and doing field work recently, so has a lot to talk about. And he's also a thoughtful young man. I really enjoyed getting to know him a little bit on the podcast today. So, thanks for listening, and I think you'll enjoy the Burbanner Podcast with Eric Heisey. Eric, welcome to the Bird Banner Podcast. Thanks for being on with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's good. I've seen your name a lot in the last uh, you know, year or two or three or whatever locally. Uh, so you've been birding for a while here in Washington, but you're spending the winter, it sounds like, out in the Winthrop area in the Okanagan County. Yes, that is where I'm spending the winter. My uh, my parents have a little cabin up uh, near Mazama. Oh. Uh, so I've just been living up there to kind of quarantine myself away from everything i actually haven't been doing a ton of birding up here mostly been skiing but oh that's nice yeah it's a it's a kind of the epicenter of cross-country skiing for washington i think yeah exactly and almost for the nation i think it's got the second largest uh, trail network in the in the lower 48 states I didn't even know that. I did uh, go stay with a friend of mine as a physician who has a, a lodge out of the, I think it's a Mazama Lodge. It was a, a lodge with a, they rent cross-country skis and have a bunch of places you can stay out there. It's pretty mm-hmm. fun a few years ago. Yeah, it's a great place. So you get, you're getting your skiing skills up to speed. Yeah, yeah. I've been, been working on it. Very it's nice. All my life. So it's nice to be able to, you know, get back into it. Yeah. Are you Bert, Are you able to do your work at all? Uh, I know you're working with a lab now, aren't you? The Ryan Norris lab? Um, yeah, I've largely finished up my work with oh, okay. for the time being. Um, I I just haven't changed my eBird profile. Okay. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I was, I was working with the lab uh, to do an undergraduate thesis. Uh, I spent um, two summers uh, field season on an island working on a long-term uh, study of savannah sparrows. Okay. And so ended up doing a uh, undergraduate thesis in the lab and work. I'm still working to publish it and slowly. There's some like revisions I need to get done and need to go through all my statistical code. But uh, yeah, slowly I'm getting there. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the work you did on savannah sparrows. What was that? Um, so the the field season I spent out there, I was finding nests. Um, for the savannah sparrows it's uh that study has been going for about i think 33 years wow since uh i think 1987 was their first year um it it didn't happen this year because of covid but uh Mm -hmm. um, anyways uh they've been collecting nesting data throughout that span on this uh one population and they've been color banding them so they can 
uh, track them through the years. Sure. So it's a, it's a long-term demographic study, which is kind of rare in uh, you know bird lore. Uh, in general, it, sure. Yeah, so it makes it a really interesting population to use for uh, answering scientific questions, especially because uh, savannah sparrows are you know, one of the most basic songbirds and that generally trends that uh, that apply to savannah sparrows will apply to a lot of other birds. So Right. So tell me about savannah sparrows. How do you find a savannah sparrow nest? They're little guys that nest in the grass, don't they? Yeah, so they nest in the tall grass, especially in deep in thickets. So uh, you basically find them behaviorally. Uh, the females, um, they can be pretty uh, inconspicuous when they're building the nest, but once they have eggs, especially once they only start incubating once they have three or four eggs, uh, so right. eggs hatch at the same time. Mm -hmm. So uh, once they are actually incubating the eggs, they will start to become a lot easier to find their nest, they'll start like chipping when they go down. So basically you just watch a female um, and try and figure out what area it's visiting a lot. And then you take, you you have like a long stick and you swipe it over the grass over where they went down into and mm -hmm. they'll flush and then you drop the stick and try and get it as close to where the bird flushed from. And then you pull apart the grass and try your best to find the nest. It, takes hours sometimes, like sometimes I bet. but some of them are really tricky but i bet and i i uh i think of savannah sparrows as all looking the same you say female by behavior i, I mean yeah. they're 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 pretty similar uh if you if you get the males them, are probably up singing and the females are less conspicuous i'm guessing if you get them in the hand their morphological measurements are slightly different like males have slightly longer wings and whatnot but. yeah to the casual birder they're just a savannah sparrow Yes, <laughs> for sure. So, uh, I, and some listeners might not be as in tune with bird biology as you are, and I might be to a little bit. Uh, remind us, how, do, how does a bird lay four eggs and not wait to incubate them? So basically the, the bird embryos will only start to develop when they're exposed to heat. So if a bird lays an egg, um, so they'll lay one egg a day, basically. Mm -hmm. And if it lays an egg uh, and waits to incubate, it'll basically just kind of like stay dormant. It'll still be alive in most cases uh, until you apply heat, at least for a little while. And so then once they've laid three or four eggs, their average clutch size is normally three eggs. But uh, yeah, once once they start incubating, the embryos will start to develop. And they, they do that, like I said earlier, just so that they all hatch at the same time. That's not like uh, one nestling hatches every day because then the nestlings would be kind of out of sync. Right. I think that's pretty common with most songbirds, but I, I wanted to hear you kind of go through that because I think some listeners might not be as in tune with that. Uh, but uh, I think some bigger birds, raptors and such, some of them aren't like that. They kind of have a first choice and second choice uh, eggs and then the littlest one hatches later and doesn't make it if the first two make it sort of thing. Is that, am I correct in that? Yeah, and like boobies will do that as well. Um, and that's kind of a fitness trade-off. Um, and that's normally only with birds that rear one young. Um, so they do that so that if the first egg that hatches is, you know, something's wrong with it, then they have a backup. But in most cases, the one they lay second dies. Yeah, I, that was my understanding too. Cool. Uh, so you studied Savannah Sparrows. Have you learned anything? What is this study showing? 
Um, so what I studied, I studied uh, the phenology of their nesting, which means uh, what time of year they're breeding. And a right. lot of birds, um, you've probably heard about this, maybe some of your listeners have too, um, nesting dates are advancing as the global climate warms. And some species nesting dates have increased as, as much as uh, two to three weeks. Um, so I, th this hadn't been looked at in savanna sparrows in this population. So I wanted to see if lay dates were, lay date being the date the day they first lay their eggs. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that would only apply to the first nest they lay that season. Too. Right. Um, so I wanted to see if that date was advancing as the temperature warmed uh, in this population. And I also wanted to test whether or not older birds were laying their eggs sooner whether or not breeding density was having any effect um, on when birds lay their eggs with the hypothesis of if there's more competition and more, more density uh, in the breeders that maybe they would uh, have to lay their legs, eggs a little early or uh, later um, because there wouldn't be as much food. And then the, the most interesting thing we looked at was um, whether or not environmental conditions experienced as a nestling uh, in this case, we looked at precipitation because uh, this, this study was conducted on an island in the Bay of Fundy where okay. there's a fair bit of precipitation in the summer. Um, so we wanted to look at whether or not precipitation experienced as a nestling would then go on to influence uh, the life or when, when uh, what they're laying their eggs later on in life. Another advantage to studying birds on an island, uh, you have a, a, a lot of songbirds, and I suspect these savannah sparrows uh, have pretty much fidelity to they, they go back to rear their young the same place they were born and do it year after year. So you have a, a, a population that's, you know, you can compare year after year. It's not just some random birds that happen to land there and make their babies. Yeah, exactly. Most, most birds come back. Uh, the average lifespan is about three or four years. Um, but some, we, I think the oldest bird in the study was like eight or so. So we have uh, multiple years for most birds. And where do the Savannah sparrows, maybe, you know, maybe you don't, where do they uh, winter, the birds from that island? You're up in the Bay of Fundy. That's off the coast of Maine somewhere, probably, or in Canada. New Brunswick was where where we were studying them. So up, up in Canada. So uh, it, it gets a little chilly up there for Savannah sparrows in the winter. They go south somewhere. They do, um, and so they show differential wintering patterns where the males will winter further north uh, than the females. Uh, and this is common uh, in uh, many bird species um, where the females will go further south for the winter because they don't have to arrive as early on the breeding ground. The right. Males, so in the savannah sparrows, the males will winter normally between like Massachusetts and North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And in the females, they'll winter normally between Virginia and Florida, a lot of them in Florida. Okay. Uh, and so the males are under more pressure to get back to the breeding grounds, normally about two to three weeks before the females do and set up a breeding territory. Um, so that's why they winter further north. Do they have uh, mate fidelity or not? They mate with a different uh, male each year, probably. Yeah, they, they don't have... Uh, like a monogamy. Um, in mm -hmm. fact, some, some males and females are polygamous. Um, a lot of females will have extra pair, what's called extra pair copulation too, where they'll basically sleep around with other males on the on the breeding ground. If and, you can call the one second copulation of a sparrow <laughs> sleeping around, yeah. <laughs> uh, 
but yeah, um, the females actually, so they, they go back to the same territory almost every year um, and the males will switch it up. So the females don't really care what male they're with. They care more what territory they're in. Okay. So they want a good territory where they can, do the males support the female on the nest a lot in that species? A fair bit. Largely they are the females, the one that incubates primarily and uh, the male, his form of support is protecting the territory more so than uh, than actually supporting the female through incubation, but he does end up feeding the nestlings. So he helps feed helps feed the chicks, and the female can get off the nest enough to feed herself. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. So have has this study's been going on a long time? So you must have looked at data over years and years, not just the data from your year this your study this year to look at phenology over the entire duration of this study. So uh, all okay. thirty of the data so you've got lots of fabulous data to look at yeah and yeah it's very high quality because uh, they've been studied for so long and uh we ended up uh showing some interesting things we uh did not see in advance in their lay date like there have been in many areas um, mm -hmm. because the temperature has not been warming steadily however we did find that older birds did lay their eggs earlier. We didn't find any effects of density on when they lay their eggs. And uh, as I was saying, the most interesting thing was we did find a link between precipitation experienced as a nestling and later in life effects that kind of came from that. So birds that experience a lot of precipitation as a nestling, mm -hmm. then have shorter lives, produced fewer young and had to basically have more nests to keep pace with the birds that experience less precipitation as a nestling. Um, basically that fecundity, which is how many nests or uh, young produced per female was mm -hmm. lower. They experienced high precipitation as a nestling. And you can kind of think of this as if, uh, if you're thinking about humans, like a child who's raised in poor conditions may, you know, be uh, malnourished and may then be shorter or, you know, just physically not quite as fit as somebody who was raised under good conditions. Sorry. Ornithologists think of fitness. The, the definition almost of fitness is the ability to, to produce lots of offspring. I mean, that, that's kind of the biologic, at least ornithologic definition of a bird's fitness, is it not? Yeah. And that's what we used to measure at them. So we, we determined that the fitness was lower, the number of offspring produced over the, the course of their lives was lower in birds that experience high precipitation. So at least in birds and probably in lots of other species, those first, literally first two weeks, it's probably what they probably hatch. And I mean, they probably fledge in 15, 18 days, something like that. Unless it's, it's more like uh, nine to 10. Oh, wow. Even, even less. So that boy, the weather, the weather in the two weeks you're in the nest uh, sets you up for life or sets you back for life as a savanna sparrow, eh? Exactly. And so th this is interesting for a couple of different reasons. Uh, one, it's the first time this is, uh, to, to my knowledge, this has been shown in a wild bird population, mm -hmm. shown, like in lab settings uh, numerous times, but not ever in the wild. Uh, and also it's interesting because the precipitation in the Bay of Fundy has been increasing throughout the period of study, especially over the last 12 years. Over the last 12 years, it's increased by something like a centimeter each year, hmm. um, which is biologically quite a lot. Um, and so in that same 12 year span where this precipitation has been increasing, 
the density, the breeding density on the island has declined. The fecundity, uh, which again is how many young produced per female has declined pretty substantially. Hmm. And uh, in, in direct correspondence with that, the number of fledglings and offspring produced by each cohort. So each group of uh, each, each group of females each year has also declined in that period. So, so your population is, is gradually diminishing and uh, at least one theory as to a factor in that, I'm sure there are lots of factors, might be climate change leading to more rain in that two weeks uh, when they're in the nest. And, and they probably have more than one clutch, do they not? Yeah, most do. Um, so it's normal for there to be uh, two broods um, in a year. Uh, it largely depends on depredation, uh, like depredation pressures, um, largely from American crows. First mm-hmm. them, <laughs> but uh, largely from American crows, it can be up to seventy percent of nests get eaten. Wow! In a season, so. Um, Females that have a good territory and have good nest selection will often have two and sometimes even three broods per year. Mm -hmm. But most females have at least one of their nests depredated. They really only get two, three or one brood. Some don't have any. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a. I'm sure it's some some combination of uh, the quality of the territory, the fitness of the bird, the the random chance variance. Yeah, cool. So you heard it first here. Savannah sparrows are declining on an island in the Bay of Fundy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and again, we don't we don't have quite enough data to directly show that it's precipitation that's causing it, but it, it seems there's a, there's a correlation at least. So cool. So Eric, you uh, studied both at the Western Washington University and at a university in Canada. Tell me about your education and. Yeah, you know, how that evolved and how that led up to this research. Yeah, so uh, I started at Western Washington University largely because uh, I wanted to stay in Washington. I love Washington and uh, the West. And uh, one of the things that really drew me there was they have a lot of recreation around Bellingham. So uh, I had also heard that they had a pretty strong biology program. So I went there for two years only to discover that nobody there studied birds, really. <laughs> There's a couple people, but not any in like the biological sciences, more in the environmental science type of stuff, mm-hmm. which was not quite as much what I was interested in. So after a couple years there, I decided I was going to look into trying to find a university where there was more uh, bird research going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had uh, actually read an uh, article in one of Cornell's Living Bird magazines on Canada Jays in Algonquin Park um, that were being studied by the guy who turned out to be my advisor in Guelph. And then I had a a good friend at the time also recommend Guelph to me. And so I went and visited uh, and met with Ryan Norris, who uh, was my advisor and sat down with him for 45 minutes. And at the end of the the 45 minute talk we had, he uh, offered to oversee me for an undergraduate thesis if I transferred there. So uh, I was just like, cool. Well, that's really what I want to do. I want to get some research experience with birds. And so I decided to transfer. Um, and educationally, I think it was definitely the right move for me. Um, like I, I learned a ton through that project. And also I think the courses at the University of Guelph were a lot 
more relevant to what I was actually interested in. I ended up uh, majoring in biodiversity, and which is not really offered most places. Um, so I, that meant that I got to study a lot of plants, a lot of insects, a lot of different walks of life that I wouldn't have necessarily gotten to uh, learn about um, if I just studied basic biology. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also, one of the main reasons I transferred there as well was uh, when I visited, I had uh, I had heard about this club, the wildlife club they have on campus there. And so mm-hmm. I mailed a couple of members and uh, I had wanted to see if they wanted to go look for woodcocks with me while I was out there because I'd never seen one. Uh, yeah. So I met up, I met up with, ended up being five people who are now my good friends. Um, and we went and found woodcocks in the Arboretum right next to campus. And, you know, all of them had eBird accounts, all of them were really into nature. And I was like, holy cow, like, I don't have to explain to you, like, what eBird is. Like, this is amazing. There are people that like nature here. Very so nice. It, the, the community ended up being really great there. And I ended up uh, being the co-president of that club uh, my second year there. Very cool. Uh, and, you know, you got two different experiences to boot. You got your Western Washington University experience and your, uh, I'm tongue twisted over the name of that, your Guelph? Guelph. It, it does sound Guelph. like, uh, you know, some like visceral reaction you would have. But, uh, <laughs> Love it. Guelph. Guelph University. City. Yes. I, I actually, when I saw that you uh, studied there, I looked it up and it's like the fourth or so third or fourth leading university in, in Canada by a lot of metrics. It's a pretty uh, highly ranked uh, prestigious school. Especially for biology. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a great school to go to. So where, where is Guelph located? It's in Alberta? It's in Ontario. Ontario. Um, okay. An hour outside of Toronto. Okay. So it's just not too far North in Ontario. Ontario goes up a ways. So you're three or four hours from Detroit and in that pretty much a birding hotspot there. I've been to Point Pelee a couple of times and it's, it's a fabulous birding area. Yeah. Okay. That, that in May is like one of the coolest birding experiences. Yeah. Very cool. I grew up in Maine, so I'm uh, pretty familiar with the state. Haven't birded there as much as I'd like. I didn't start birding until I moved away, but I go back and visit almost every summer and get out a little bit. I'm starting to develop a group of friends, birding friends in Maine. And so it's a great place to go, especially in the summer. <laughs> it's a rough, rough, rough winter there, but nice summer. Yeah. I love New Brunswick, so I imagine it's fairly similar. Yeah, I think it is. So what do you see going forward? Uh, do you have any uh, firm plans or, or just dreams? Or where are you at? Yeah, so uh, right now I'm applying for jobs. Um, I just interviewed last week, and I should hear back if I get this job or not tomorrow, hopefully. But I just interviewed for a position in Kauai doing um, seabird research on Newell Shearwaters, Hawaiian petrels, and Vandrump storm petrels. Oh, nice. Monitoring how uh, human infrastructure and like pollution are affecting those species and trying to figure out some ways to minimize the anthropogenic uh, impacts on those species. Do you know Alex Wong? I don't know him, but I know of him. Yeah, you should definitely reach out to Alex. Alex was a guest uh, on the podcast earlier, as was his dad, uh, Art Wong, lives right, is one of my neighbors here in Tacoma. And uh, Alex is just a wealth of information about all things Hawaiian birding and a super nice guy. So he's definitely someone you should reach out to. Yeah, well, if I get that job, especially. Yeah. Is it going to be on the big island? Oh, you said Kauai. Yeah, Kauai. 
And I think he might be in Kauai. He might be on, I'm not sure. He was in Kauai. He might be on the Big Island now. I'm not sure. Yeah. Right. Very cool. Uh, and have you done any other field work uh, or is that your primary uh, job experience so far? Um, yeah, I've done, I've done a few different things. I spent a summer working with a wildlife photographer in uh, Arizona. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, well, yeah, I, I worked th- with him for a summer. He runs like a photography ranch. Um, okay. He basically sets up a bunch of feeder stuff in his backyard and uh, he has a pond, which in Arizona is very important for wildlife. So he gets a sure. bunch of wildlife coming in there and he sets up blinds and so I'd help him run his basic operations there, which was interesting. And I got to, I learned a lot about photography um, doing that. Um, that's, that's one of my passions is photography. I've really been working on that a lot in the past couple of years. It fits nicely with birding, get to combine yeah. the two. So I, I did that summer field season in New Brunswick, working with Savannah sparrows. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then last summer I was supposed to be in Alberta surveying prairie birds outside of Waterton Lakes National Park. Right. But COVID happened. So, and uh, I ended up working in Southern Ontario on wood thrush. We, I was working with a master's student who was doing a project. Uh, they had, they had 20 years ago investigated about 40 different woodlots around this one city that is rapidly developing mm-hmm. in Southern Ontario. Um, they found wood thrush in each woodlot and found a bunch of nests and uh, monitored that population. And so we returned back to those same woodlots 20 years later to see right. um, how the population was doing in that area. We were especially looking at how urban development was affecting the wood thrush mm-hmm. um, because that that city grew in population by, I think, 100,000, 150,000 people in that space. Ouch. Um, yeah. Southern Ontario is very quickly developing. We found that dis- the wood thrush had disappeared from about two thirds of the woodlots. So we didn't, we didn't find a whole lot. Um, we, we found nests though and monitored them throughout the summer and uh, ended up doing a lot of point counts to survey for other forest birds in that area as well. So it was interesting. It wasn't exactly what I wanted to be doing, but it was, it was still good to work with birds. Field work is sometimes uh, if you get field work, it's good field work because, you know, it's, it's got to be, it's a competitive field. There's a lot of young guys like you hustling for, you know, mm-hmm. not enough jobs to go around. Yeah, for sure. But, uh, wood, yeah. wood thrush are pretty interesting. I, I, I said, I go back to Maine every summer and my family has a camp with, you know, they're not, we didn't call them woodlots, but just woods up behind the camps. And, you know, 20 years ago, wood thrush were just singing every morning and you always heard them and you always saw them and they are just flat out not there anymore. And I, I have to literally go to a couple special places to find a wood thrush when I go back these days. So it's a, I think they catch it on both ends. Their nesting areas have been impacted by development, as you say, and I think their wintering grounds are maybe even more of an issue. Yeah, I actually, um, the, the PhD student I worked with uh, on Savannah Sparrows, he has been studying wood thrush and their declines on the wintering grounds. And he's he uh, showed in one of his PhD chapters that the wintering grounds, uh, destruction of habitat on the wintering grounds is really strongly impacting them, probably more so than the development of their summering grounds. Yeah, I think it's, you know, when you catch it on both ends, it's gotta be tough as, tough as a migratory bird. Seriously. So 
I, you mentioned uh, when we we chatted before uh, before this episode that you don't think of yourself so much as a lister. You like to you really like to see birds in their natural habitat and observe behavior and that sort of thing. So, what about birding turns you on? What what really gets you going? Um, well, I I just like you said, I really I really like just being out in nature and. I, I used to be very bird central where it was like all I looked at. I wouldn't pay any attention to the plants or the insects or the other things around me. But uh, I, I think that now that I've kind of learned more about birds, I've learned that there's a lot of different things that impact birds, you know, different birds like different trees, like for example, least flycatcher, you only find them in aspen groves or, uh, you know, they only eat certain kinds of insects. So. I, I think that I have really enjoyed birding because it gets me out and it keeps me learning about the world around me. Uh, I think that I kind of above all else just like to keep learning. And uh, yeah, I, I think that birds are kind of, you know, that like gateway drug to nature. Um, it's, they definitely were for me. So. So, how, so how did you get hooked on that gateway drug, Eric? Tell me your birding uh, story. I, well, I've always really been fascinated with nature and I actually grew up, uh, I learned to read kind of on bird books. I loved uh, flipping through and looking at the pictures of all the different birds. And once I decided that I couldn't find uh, dinosaur bones in my sandbox, that was kind of like my vice, you know, going out and looking at evening grosbeaks beaks or all kinds of amazing birds that Washington has to offer. So uh, that's kind of how I got hooked on birds. And then I, I kind of like shifted between birds and reptiles and fish and all kinds of things until uh, I was about my early teens. Um, uh, my main birding mentor, um, I mean, I have several, but the the guy who really got me hooked on birds was Andy Stepniewski. Uh, oh, yeah. You probably know him. He's a amazing birder and naturalist. And uh, we went on a, a field trip with him uh, to the Skagit Valley um, to see like snow geese and it was a snowy owl eruption year. Oh, um, wow. Just snowy owls around and it was awesome. And he showed me eBird and I was hooked. And uh, so ever since uh, I've been, you know, out looking for birds uh, and in, in those kind of earlier years, especially before I kind of went to university, I was, I was probably more list focused um, because at that point it was all very new, you know, for me sure. to, you know, go out and see all these new amazing birds that I hadn't seen before. But now that I've kind of uh, seen them more species, uh, I really find that I'm starting to enjoy more of that wonderment uh, aspect to birding, you know, going out and finding a flock of pine grosbeaks beaks and just going like, wow, these things are so amazing and staring at them for two hours. They are cool. I have to say, I've really enjoyed a, a couple, you've put up in the last month or so, this winter at least, put up a couple of posts on Tweeters. Tweeters is the uh, listserv through the University of Washington that birders in Washington uh, go to to see what everybody's doing and seeing. Uh, you put up really, really fun uh, write-ups. I think it was on Place in the River. I can't remember. What was the name? Aspen Bar. Yes, yes, Casper Bar and you, you, uh, Casper Bar, and you, uh, uh kind of told about birding there on the future scene. I says, Well, this guy's thoughtful for a young man. This guy's got it together. I love it. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that was fun. I also enjoyed just hearing you say you learned to read from, uh, uh 
looking at bird guides, uh, I feel guides. I, uh, I did an episode. My youngest birder was a 12 year old birder. I spent last winter in Texas or a month of last winter in Texas. And I interviewed Ryan Rodriguez with his dad and Ryan is a 12 year old. It was 12 last winter. And when he, he started birding when he was two and he was just like neither his parents are birders, nobody. He just fell in love with birds when he was two years old. And when he turned four for the summer, his dad bought him Big Sibley. Just here, look at the pictures, kid. And at the end of the summer, he learned to read by Big Sibley. He read the book, knew all the birds. He's four and a half years old. It's like, wow. Passion will take you a long ways. That's about what I, that's about what I did. My parents weren't birders either. And then they quickly realized that I was way crazier than they were. So very cool. So now I've met a second person who learned to read from birding field guides. That is, I thought that was going to be a one and done story. Very cool, Eric. Very cool. Good for you. So going forward, what do you see uh, going forward for yourself uh, in terms of jobs, education, that sort of thing? Well, uh, it's all kind of up in the air with COVID, obviously. Sure. But uh, going forward, uh, I have a really uh, big passion for the tropics, especially the neotropics. So the neotropics being the new world tropics of Central sure. America. So I would love to get back there and uh, do some work there for the next few years, if possible. Um, I, there's just so little we know about so many birds in the tropics and so many other walks of life as well. Uh, as I as I think I mentioned, I've really been getting more into kind of an integrated idea of ecology where I'm looking a lot more at like frogs or snakes or butterflies and all kinds of other cool stuff. So then there's, like I said, there's, there's so much we don't know about that region. So I'd love to get back there, but uh, just over the next few years, I'd just really like to go out and work some really fun, uh, interesting field jobs. Hopefully that's my main goal is to just enjoy what I'm doing and, uh, work outside is the big thing for me. So I'd like to do that for, I don't know, a few years at least. We'll see, we'll see when I get tired of it. And I'm sure I'll have to go back and do masters at some point, but. Uh, sure. And there are, there are places that ha I, I know LSU does a tremendous amount of work on mm -hmm. tropical birds and I'm sure there are other places I, yeah, I'm not into that scene. So I'm sure there are other places that do too, but good luck. I I'm leaving for Costa Rica in two weeks. Ooh, that's uh, okay. Yeah. My, my daughter lives in Costa Rica Ooh. and yes. And I, I haven't seen her in two years. I was going to spend a whole bunch of time last winter uh, at the end of last winter and couldn't go because of COVID. So it's been quite a while. So I am flying. I, I got my second dose of immunization two weeks ago and am hitting the road in a couple of weeks. I'm super excited about going down there. That's yeah. Should be really fun. I, I, my uh, Costa Rican uh, life list is about 60 birds from when I saw her the first time and they were little, li her backyard birds where she, and, and she lives in a different place now. She was living in the, the Southern part of the Caribbean, almost down to Panama at that time. And now she's on the, the slope of the Western mountains uh, about half an hour from the ocean. So a little bit of elevation. So I should have, oh, it should be really yeah. good. <laughs> it should be great. I'm super excited about it. Uh, Alex, thank you so much for being my guest today. I try to end up with uh, giving uh, my guests a chance to, to tell listeners how they can be contacted. If anyone wants to reach out to you, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Well, email is a good way. Uh, my email is H-E-I-S-E-Y-E-W at gmail.com. Uh, you can find it on my eBird profile too. Perfect. Um, but I'm also on Facebook and uh, Instagram. 
as uh, Eric Heisey or my Instagram handle is uh, Mr. Bird Guy. You can see a lot of my photography on there. I've been, been in the midst of a big photo dump lately from the last few years. So. Very good. I'll put links to those in both the podcast notes and in the blog posts that I always put up associated with each episode. So people will be able to reach out to you there. Uh, well, thanks again for being my guest, Eric. I really appreciate it. And we'll say uh, thanks for being on. Take care. Thank you. You too. Well, thanks for listening. I really had fun talking with Eric today. Make sure you check out the birdbrander.com blog post that I put up associated with each episode. That'll have more information about Eric and the things we talked about. I enjoyed talking with him today and hope you enjoyed listening. Until next time, good birding. Good day. <laughs> <laughs>